Good evening, everybody. Uh, it's a great pleasure to welcome you all to the LSE and to this year's joint Destin Stickered Public Lecture by Professor Paul Collier. My name is Stuart Corbridge. I'm the head of Destin, which is LSE's Development Studies Institute, and I'll be chairing tonight's event. Professor Tim Besley of Economics and Stickard is your co-host. It's another of LSE's acronyms, the Suntory and Toyota International Centers for Economics and Related Disciplines. I'd also like to thank Stephanie Davis, who is the department manager, department manager of Destin, for helping with the arrangements for tonight's lecture and for the dinner that some of us will go to afterwards. <laughs> Not all of you. <laughs> it was Tim Besley who suggested that we should ask Paul Collier to give tonight's lecture. And that was back in June, fortunately, because Professor Collier is a very difficult person nowadays to get hold of. Uh, I was delighted to accept this suggestion on behalf of Destin because, as it happened, I just finished reading the book on which the lecture tonight will be based. And that book is uh, The Bottom Billion, holding it, Why the Poorest Countries Are Failing and What Can Be Done About It. Now, to say that The Bottom Billion is an important and widely read book is now simply a matter of fact. In addition to being a set text, for LSE's Development Studies students, which is a sure sign of quality. The Bottom Billion is a bestseller that has won rave reviews for its hard-hitting analysis of the problems of the 58 countries that Professor Collier identifies simply as Africa Plus. When I checked on Amazon yesterday, the Bottom Billion stood at a remarkably high 649 on its list of best-selling books, and it's not yet out in paperback. In fact, it won't be out, I think, for another year. Now, this is considerably more than a million places ahead of my own latest effort. <laughs> Honestly. It's more than 90,000 ahead of Tim Besley's book, Principled Agents. And until today, it was some distance ahead of the book recently picked by the director of the LSE and his colleagues, as this year's Booker Prize-winning novel. <laughs> now, the New York Times has called the bottom billion, quite simply, and I quote, the best book on international affairs this year. And I think that is true, and I think there are four, at least, good reasons for that judgment. To start with, notwithstanding perhaps your perceptions of the book, it really is a very optimistic text in certain respects. Professor Collier insists strongly at the beginning of chapter one, quote, that the third world has shrunk. Five billion people, he argues, are on the route to prosperity. Development is working. Secondly, the book provides a clear account of the four main traps which lock the bottom billion out of those virtuous cycles of economic growth and political stability that most of us enjoy or hope to enjoy. And I'm sure we'll be hearing about those traps tonight. Thirdly, Professor Collier's analysis of the range of policies that can credibly be used to address the problems of the bottom billion are, I think, far more clearly thought out than are those of Jeffrey Sachs and Bill Easterly, the two commentators to whom he is often compared. 
Lastly, the book is clearly written and it doesn't pull its punches. It's a provocation in the best sense of that word that has grown out of Paul Collier's long and distinguished career as an academic working on the problems of poor people in conflict and post-conflict situations. But it also draws heavily on Paul's experience as a policy analyst, most notably as a director of the World Bank's research department, but also as a senior advisor to the, Blair's commission, to the Blair government's Commission on Africa. Paul Collier did his undergraduate and graduate degrees at Oxford University. After stints at Harvard and the World Bank, he's now back at Oxford as Professor of Economics and Director of the Centre for the Study of African Economies. Paul is also a Fellow of St Anthony's College. Needless to add, as I said before, Professor Collier is hugely in demand just now as a public speaker, which means that we are especially grateful to you, Paul, for coming to LSE tonight to deliver this year's Destin Stickered Public Lecture on the topic of the divergence of the bottom billion. Thank you. Thanks very much indeed for, for inviting me here. Um, the academics write books like Cats Chase Mice. You know, it's just what we do. And I've written, I'm not sure, there must be at least a dozen of them. Right? Uh, the Bottom Billion is the first book I wrote to be read. Right? <laughs> and it's a very unacademic Thing to do. And um, when we get to the end, I'm going to tell you why I did that. Yeah. Um, but it certainly worked. Right? Um, at one stage, the bottom billion got into the US nonfiction top ten, right up there, batting away with Ronald Reagan's greatest thoughts. <laughs> um, now, I checked uh, tonight. It's the sort of thing that obsessive book writers do nowadays. I checked in your bookshop. There are only 78 copies of the bottom billion there, and there are more than 78 people in this room. So be quick about it. Um, what does it say? Now, I'm obviously not going to tell you everything that it says. If I did, those 78 copies would just sit there, right? So, uh, but let me try and give you a a sense um, and it's um, although it's likely written it is based on several years of a research program by myself and a whole gang of people um, so it's uh, I hope got a scholarly basis although certainly the style is not the usual tedious academic stuff right? um, and it's Tries to be, it's distinctive, I think, in three respects. And these are, first, its definition of what the problem is. Then its diagnosis of why we've got a problem. And thirdly, the prescriptions. And I'm going to take it in that order and see how far we get in about an hour, 50 minutes or so. And let's start with the statement of the problem and all my working life I've been working on development and 
the problem was defined as something to do with poverty and then that got much more firmly stated so the last 10 years or so uh, it's become taken for granted that the development problem, the development challenge is poverty reduction. Um, Now I want to start by saying that that is actually not the result of deep academic research it's the result of an ingenious solution to a public relations problem in the external relations department of the World Bank in the mid-1990s and the external relations department of the World Bank faced this problem there was the bank trying to get some friends by the mid-90s it didn't have many and the left believed basically in redistribution within societies. That was the main focus of energy on the left. And the main focus of energy on the right uh, was growth. And my saying our business is poverty reduction, the bank was able to finesse between whether poverty reduction was going to be achieved by redistribution. So the left could hear poverty reduction, and that means redistribution, and the right could hear poverty reduction means growth. So that's how it started, as an external relations strategy. It was very effective. Um, And then, of course, economists come in kind of like sheep, in a way, uh, and start counting it. So we get a huge industry counting Poverty. What do we mean by it? How do we really, you know, do we really mean that? How do we count it? How many? And then annually, there's the, the numbers of how many poor people are in the world below this threshold, below that threshold, blah blah. It misses the point, and that's why it's such a dumb idea. It's it's, it's lured us into missing what's been going on, and what has been going on for quite a long time, but especially the last 10-15 years, is a process of divergence within developing countries. Not within each society, but between one bunch of countries and another. For 4 billion people living in developing countries, those countries are growing at historically unprecedented rates, or they're already at middle income or sometimes both. Now, there are still plenty of poor people in those societies, but the problem of addressing poverty in those poor societies is totally different. And then there's a billion people living in about 50 to 60 countries who are now at the bottom of the global economy, whose economies have basically been stagnant from 1965 to the millennium, if you do the per capita income analysis correctly which none of the international public agencies have done so the fundamental problem to my mind is a divergence between this billion at the bottom a group of countries and the rest of the developing world and that divergence which set in basically as far back as we take the data has been accelerating so that from the 1980s and the 1990s, it was running at 5% a year. 
the per capita income divergence between the bottom billion and the next four billion. So by the millennium, the gap between the average citizen of the bottom billion and the average citizen of the next four was five to one and widened year by year. Now that seems to me to be just socially unsustainable. As the world is economically diverging, socially it's integrating. And so that divergence is both a human tragedy and a potential nightmare. And yet I think it was missed. The, um, if the problem is divergence, then uh, very clearly the solution is something to do with growth. And it's much more demanding than just reducing poverty. Evidently, if the bottom billion have been stagnant for 35 years, the, inc the, the, poverty, the incidence of poverty in those countries may have gone up a bit, may have gone down a bit, but basically it's stagnant. Nothing's happening in the absolutes. What's happening is divergence. And so the objective needs to be to reverse divergence. The bottom billion have to catch up. And so we're winning once there is convergence of the bottom billion with the rest of mankind, and until that, we're losing, no matter what happens to this poverty count. Yeah? So the poverty count is itself a highly misleading diagnostic of the true problem. It's a global aggregation of numbers of poor people. And as I'll show in a little bit, it's also a very poor, uh, diagnostic, very poor guide towards appropriate policy. So there's the problem statement. It's divergence of the countries at the bottom, now at the bottom. Let's turn to diagnosis. The countries at the bottom, now at the bottom weren't always at the bottom. And their defining feature, as far as I'm concerned, is not that they are now at the bottom, so it's not a self-fulfilling definition about divergence rates. It's about countries that are stuck in one or more of a series of traps. Uh, now, the, again, there's a sort of left-right split here, and there's all these sort of left-right splits that are really dysfunctional. The, the left tends to see you know, either poverty itself as a trap, somebody famous said that, or it sees global capitalism as intrinsically a trap for the poor or something, you know. Um, and then the right kind of denies the traps that globalization will just kind of raise all boats. Both those positions just seem to me intellectually untenable. So I've, I'm going to focus on four traps. There may well be others. It's not an exhaustive list. But they're salient, each of them. And so let me spend a few minutes going through them. Uh, the first one I'll take is what I think is at the moment much the most important trap that we've got to face down. Uh, and that is uh, the resource curse, the problem of uh, poor governance in countries with very large uh, natural resource revenues from resource extraction. And to my mind, that is the single most important phenomenon now, though not necessarily over the last 40 years. The reason it's important now, of course, is that we've got global commodity boom, so very high prices driving revenues up, and... Reinforcing that, because prices are high, 
there's a lot of um, uh, exploration and discovery. And that's pushing to the last margins of the earth. Now, the last margins of the earth for resource exploration are not the geologically challenging, the places that are cold or wet. That was tackled in the 60s and 70s, right? The last places on earth are the places that have got rough governance, that have been in conflict. And so the resource boom is spreading particularly to the environments with the weakest governance. Now, it's even controversial whether there is a resource curse. If you look at the uh, academic quantitative literature, uh, the big exponent of the resource curse was, was Jeff Sachs, and the problem with that is that it's supported by cross-section regressions, and nobody believes cross-section regressions. Huh? And that skepticism is not ill-placed because, of course, the, uh, the resource curse, if it exists, is a process through time. And so just lining up a set of countries, some with, some without, and it then requires a leap of faith to say, ah, this cross-section difference is actually reflecting some process through time. And most people are not prepared to take that sort of leap of faith. And then until very recently, the only sort of serious time series analysis was uh, the Dietman Miller work. But Dietman Miller used vector autoregression analysis. Um, and the, the problem with that is that it could only look a few years ahead. So it looked about five years ahead, and what it found was no resource curse. Everything just looks fine. Right? So there we have a mismatch between the time series analysis and the cross-section analysis. Where do we go from there? So there's now reasonably new econometric technology which can deal with that. It's co-integration analysis. So together with Benedict Goderus, I did a co-integration analysis on the resource curse, global data for the last 40 years to see what is the relationship, short run and long run, between commodity prices and the subsequent growth of commodity exporting countries. First of all, we've validated the, repeated the results of, uh, of Deaton and Miller. So the short run, the first few years, it's hunky-dory. Up you go. Constant price GDP rolls up. So if you simulate the present African commodity booms, if they play out in the same way as global history the last 40 years, if GDP starts at 100, by 2010, just in terms of quantities, we're up to 10% relative to counterfactuals. So we've gone from 100 to 110. There's also a boost in income on top of the boost in output, but the growth story is really about output. So, short run, hunky-dory, right? About the long run. We've come back 15 years later, and on the global history, the last 40 years, it's not hunky-dory, it's humpty-dumpty. You track up from 100 to 110, you end up at 75. In other words, output is 25% lower than counterfactual if 
the present commodity booms in Africa play out the same way as they have done globally the last 40 years. That is not a forecast of the prices themselves. It's a forecast of the, global con of the growth consequences of high prices, how they play out in the long term. So um, just to drill down a little bit there, um, we next said, well, what's driving that? And uh, we found, first of all, that there's a big difference between agricultural and non-agricultural commodities. With the agriculturals, there's no resource curse. It's entirely the non-agriculturals. What's the difference between agriculturals and non-agriculturals? Key difference is who gets the revenues. Agriculturals, there are no sustained rents, and by and large, farmers get the money. So this says farmers do okay. The non-agriculturals, the resource rents accrue to government because there are big rents, very sensibly governments tax them, and so governments have to use them. So immediately, as it were, the gun starts smoking in the area of governments. So the next thing we did was to take the longest time series on governance we could find, which is the international country risk rating, which is um, quite a, a, a good index because it's a commercial index. Firms have to buy it. And if, firms, if it only survives because firms buy it, there's probably some informational content in it. So we took the very earliest we could get back. So the measure of governance, the furthest we could go back. And we said that's the initial level of governance measured by this index. We took a threshold level. It's an ordinal index, so you've got to take a threshold. We said, does it make a difference? And boy, it makes a difference. Right? Above a threshold, even for the non-agricultural commodity exporters, there's no resource curse. You go up in the short run, you go up further in the long run. That's Norway, even Australia. Right? Um, so, decent governance, up you go. Right? Below a threshold is where the resource curse sets in. Right? Where's the threshold? Right? To take a neutral country um, it's about where the governance level of Portugal was in the mid-1980s. So you've got to ask yourself, is the present governance level of the bottom billion countries with commodity booms above or below the governance level of Portugal in the mid-80s? So what next? Governance is a big flaky word. So we thought, well, can we drill down a bit? Um, and, uh, and in particular, there's one respect in which the future might well look very different from the past if governance is important, and that is that the commodity booms of the 70s, which is really what's driving these results, the fact that they were missed opportunities, those booms took place in countries that were very largely autocratic. What happened in the 1990s, of course, was a wave of democratization globally, especially in Africa. So we thought, well, maybe that is the institutional change that will raise standards of governance so that the future is going to be better than the past. So rather than assert that, we thought we'd better look. So the next thing was to say, okay, how does democracy affect how these resource booms play out? And this is work I've been doing with, with Anka Huffler. 
with whom I've done a lot of this work. And uh, the same sort of approach, we took a threshold level of democracy, we interacted it with the resource rents, and we looked to see how that plays out in subsequent growth. Um, and it's, the story gets more cheerful, but the, the next step is really quite depressing, because it is significant. Democracy makes the handling of resource spoons significantly worse. And substantially worse. So that's kind of really depressing. Um, you might hope that democracy is the discipline on governments which makes resource windfalls used accountably, but instead it seems that it's the resource rents which undermine what is normally a beneficial effect of democracy. And indeed, when you strip the resource rents out, what's left in the non-resource-rich economies is a significant beneficial effect of democracy on growth. So normally there is some sort of accountability effect, and it's not sustained in the resource-rich. So then we thought, okay, let's drill down a bit deeper. What aspects of democracy are kind of causing this? And there are two, um, once we started to think about this, there are two very obviously different dimensions of democracy. One is about how a government comes to power, how it acquires power, and that is electoral competition. That's one defining feature of democracy. No elections, no democracy. But in a mature democracy, it's by no means the only defining feature of democracy. Right? Equally important, conceptually, is checks and balances on how a government can use power. So a mature democracy is both electoral competition plus checks and balances. So do these play out differently? In resource-rich countries, and uniquely in resource-rich countries, they do. What really matters, it turns out, is the checks and balances. Electoral competition drives you into a nightmare. The combination of resource rents and electoral competition, presumably it's financing the bribery which subverts the electoral process. Look at Nigeria. Checks and balances, on the other hand, are uniquely powerful, beneficial in resource-rich countries. So, ideally, we'd like a democracy in a resource-rich country to have very strong checks and balances and we might even be able to be prepared to trade off a bit of electoral competition for that. There is such a country in Africa. It's called Botswana. Right? Fastest growing economy on earth for many years. It harnessed diamonds into growth in a landlocked desert. Right? What, unfortunately, what we usually get is not democracies that look like Botswana, it's democracies that look like Nigeria. Where, and the, the reason for that is that checks and balances are really difficult to establish. They're, they're not events, they're processes. And they're public goods from which everybody benefits. And so nobody bothers. Whereas electoral competition is easy to get established. Iraq, Afghanistan... Right? The incentives for political parties to participate are overwhelming because of the root of power. And so that wave of democratization produced very lopsided democracies. Okay? So the prognosis is that unless 
something changes, the present resource booms will, of course, be hunky-dory in the short term. That's Africa now. But they may not be hunky-dory in the long term. Now, I've gone into that in some detail because I think at the moment it's the most important trap. I'm not going to be able to, in the course of an hour, go through all the traps like that. So I'm going to skim over the other three. But there are three others. One is the conflict trap. I'm going to skim straight over that because if if you read anything by me, it's probably something to do with that. We've kept on working on it, so there's a lot of new results. Um, But basically, they're confirming the old story, which is that... um, a set of economic characteristics um, make countries much more prone to conflict. Once you've got into conflict, it's very hard to get out of it. The average civil war lasts more than ten times as long as the average international war. And even when you're out of it, and by the time you're out of it, you've destroyed your economy, the risks of going back into it are very much elevated. And that's why it's a trap. I should say, finally, just revisiting the resource curse for a moment, one reason it's a trap is that we've looked to see how do checks and balances evolve over time if you've got a lot of natural resources. And remember how they need to evolve. The checks and balances need to get stronger. And in fact, we've looked over a period of 30 years, there's a gradual and inexorable decline in checks and balances as a function of high resource rents. So the democracy does evolve, or the polity does evolve, but in the wrong direction. There's the trap. Two other traps. There's landlocked countries. Now, Jeff Sachs has introduced attention to the, fa- to the problem of being landlocked, and kind of everybody laughed and said, what about Switzerland and blah, you know. And... Um, and actually, the, the, the right answer is it has to be much more nuanced than just saying landlocked. If you're resource-rich, it turns out it really doesn't matter whether you're, you're landlocked or coastal. Yeah? Those two pool, econometrically. Yeah? What matters is only if you're resource-scarce. If you don't have the option of Botswana, if you don't have the option of Botswana, then, boy, it matters whether you're landlocked or coastal. Yeah? If you're coastal, you can at least potentially play the Asian game of breaking in to global markets in labor-intensive goods. And if you're landlocked, you're stuck. In fact, the landlocked resource scarce have really only one viable strategy, and that is to piggyback on their growth of their more successful neighbors. The neighborhood matters. That's actually why Switzerland is just fine. The Swiss don't wake up each morning saying, God, we wish if only Germany and France and Italy would sink beneath the waves, right? (laughs) Germany and France and Italy are Switzerland's core market. It's at the heart of a big market. And try that for Uganda. Just look at where Uganda is on a map and try saying it. Your market is your neighborhood. To put that more graphically, Niger's only hope is if Nigeria harnesses its oil wealth for growth. If Nigeria doesn't grow, Niger's stuck. There's no way, I think, of getting Niger to middle income 
without piggybacking on Nigerian growth. That's another reason why the poverty measure is such a poor guide to what you need to do. The epicenter of the global poverty problem is the landlocked resource scarce. But in fixing that problem, they're not the places to start. You need to fix up the more promising neighbours. Africa's problem, those countries in Africa, are that the neighbours, even with more favourable opportunities, haven't yet taken those opportunities. It's particularly Africa's problem. Outside Africa, only 1% of the world's population lives in landlocked resource-scarce countries. Another way of stating exactly that same statistic is that outside Africa, places that are landlocked and resource-scarce haven't become countries. Right? Very sensible, that. In Africa, a third of the population is living in these places. Right? So it's a major, major problem. Final trap is to start out with poor policies and governance and to be small and have very few educated people. Now, in fact, if we go back 40-odd years, almost all developing countries had poor policies, poor economic policies and pretty rough governance. In fact, head of the queue, way ahead of any country in Africa, a lousy governance and lousy economic policies was Mao's China. Right? It outdid anything that Africa could offer. Right? And the difference is that China and India and a lot of other countries reformed themselves and reformed faster than African countries did. Now, I believe that reform has to come from within. I think the idea that you can sort of impose or induce major change from outside is ridiculous. And so we're looking at what is the strength of internal processes of change within these societies. And again, I've looked statistically. So I've, looked, I've taken globally all the countries that started with fairly low income and poor policies and governance below some threshold. And then I investigate what does it take decisively to exit that state. And two things that show up absolutely powerfully and systematically are having small population and very few educated people. And I think they're telling the same story, that you need a critical mass of educated people within a society to achieve change. Because what, what does change involve? It involves a diagnosis of past failure, putting together a strategy for change, and then implementing it. And that requires some scale of educated people. India, China, are big enough to have not just a huge pool of educated people, but all the things that support uh, discussion and criticism, namely a, a media, an informed media, a high-quality media, and then try that in Central African Republic. There isn't even a newspaper, huh? let alone a good one. Huh? And so the process of reform in the small countries of the bottom billion just took longer. It's happened in a lot of the bottom billion countries they've now reformed, but they were slower. The nation. That turns out to be crucial 
for one group of countries, the coastal resource scarce. Because the coastal resource scarce, remember, there's one strategy which we know works and can take these countries right up to middle income fast. And that's break into global markets for labor-intensive goods. Asia did that. Africa missed the boat. Because the boat sailed past in the 1980s. That's when developing countries broke in. Why has Africa missed the boat, although it's now reformed? Because Asia has developed clusters. And the modern economics of, especially of manufacturing, probably services too, emphasizes the enormous economies of agglomeration. The one number you'll remember from this lecture, I think is actually not in the bottom billion, um, because I think I didn't know it then, and it's it's about buttons. Um, And uh, 60% of the world's buttons are made in one Asian city. I find that quite mind-blowing, really. And it's not because Mega Button Incorporated happens to be located there, right? There isn't Mega Button Incorporated. It's just there are lots of little firms all clustering in the same city to drive costs down. And now ask yourself, can Africa compete in buttons? No, no, it has no hope. Fortunately, some of the other labor-intensive manufacturers, like garments, there's still economies of agglomeration, but they're not as powerful as buttons, one hopes. And so it's not a forlorn idea to try and shoehorn the bottom billion countries that have not broken in to global markets to shoehorn them in. But for that, we need policies. And that's where I'm now going to turn. Probably the most distinctive aspect of the bottom billion is, um, is, policy, is, is what it advocates on policy. You may conceivably have noticed that development policy has come to be a little polarized between one guy called Jeff and another guy called Bill. Right? And Bill and Jeff show is all about aid. Right? It's the magic solution. It's all we need. It's the problem. Right? Now, that is deeply dysfunctional in terms of actually mobilizing policy for change. It also strikes me as academically incredible. Um, I'm going to say very little about aid because my main message is that we've obsessed about aid far too much. We've obsessed about aid because politicians have used it as gesture politics and they've played into a mental frame in which Africa and the rest of the bottom billion are victims of our guilt. And aid is our atonement for this guilt. The guilt of capitalism. And so aid is actually all about us. It's not about whether it's effective. It's a moral battle within the rich countries about whether we're guilty or not. That's totally irrelevant. What matters is we've got to fix the problem. And we've not fixed it. Let me give you an analogy, which is the last time America got serious about economic development. What did it do? It's very clear the last time America got serious. Uh, It was in the late 1940s. And what was the region it wanted to develop economically? It was us. 
Right? And it had very good reason. Right? Europe was on its knees after a devastating war. There was a Soviet Union hovering there in the east and in the late 1940s small European countries were crumbling one at a time into communism. And the communist giant had rockets pointed at America. And that persuaded America to get serious. It hadn't got serious after the First World War. If you read the Peacemakers, you'll realize 1919 was very like now. A failure to address the real problems, a load of theater. And look how we messed up in 1919. But in the 1940s, we got it right. What did we do? What did America do? It's not what we did, it's what they did. But their actions are a guide to us now. Yes, they had an aid program. They didn't see aid as part of the problem. They saw it as part of the solution. So they had martial aid. But it was only part of the solution and not actually the major part. They then totally reversed their trade policy. Now, trade policy is political big time, not like aid. Right? And before the Second World War, America had been totally protectionist. It tore that up. It recognized it had to integrate Europe into the then global economy, which meant America. To do that, it had to lower trade barriers, and it had to institutionalize it, and so it set up the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, dragged Europe into the American economy, gradually. So total reversal of trade policy, that was part of getting serious. Total reversal of American security policy. Before the war, American security policy was isolationist. And after the war, 100,000 plus troops in Europe for more than 40 years. No more isolationism. So total reversal of trade policy and security policy. Hugely sensitive political issues that they swallowed. And finally, governance, rules, codes, laws. Again, a total reversal. Before the war, total national sovereignty, non-interference, you roast your Jews, that's nothing to do with us, right? After the Second World War, by God, they recognized governance matters. Mutual systems of governance, scrutiny and support. They found the OECD, a mutual governance scrutiny system, and they encouraged the formation of the European community. That's the waterfront of policies. Aid, trade, security, governance. We need all four. We need to get serious. That's what happened last time we seriously addressed an economic development problem. Now, you have to ask yourself, is the present economic development problem changing from divergence of the bottom billion to convergence harder or easier than the problem of rebuilding Europe after the war. To my mind, it's obviously harder. And that means we need to be at least as serious in our purpose. And we have not be. Again, I've not got time to go through very many policies. I'll take... Um, what shall I take? I'll take one policy, um, which is... Uh, really topical. I've talked a bit about resource-rich countries and now I'm going to talk about trade. Trade policy. Trade policy, the area of economic policy least well understood by the general public. 
and also highly politicized left-right, the left believing in protectionism, the right believing in free trade. They can't both be right. They can both be wrong. And I think they are in this instance. What do the bottom billion need? And let's take specifically this problem of levering the bottom billion countries that missed the boat in the 1980s into global manufacturing markets. And think of the problem of buttons and clusters. Asia's got the clusters. Africa hasn't. Is there any policy we can do that will bring the boat back? Yes. What Africa and the bottom billion need is temporary protection in our markets from the established Asian producers. Temporary because all you're doing is pump priming the formation of clusters. Once you've got the clusters, the costs fall and you can take the protection away. But it's a chicken and egg problem. No protection, no clusters, no clusters, higher costs, and therefore no firms fall. So it's a protectionist agenda, but it's protection in our markets, not in the markets of the bottom billion. Nobody likes that. The right doesn't like it because it hears something that's not free trade. The left doesn't like it because it hears something that's not about protecting Africa from us. That's why we've not got it yet. But in case you think it's political fantasy, actually, we sort of half have it. There's an American scheme and a European scheme, both of which already protect Africa from Asia. The American scheme is called the Africa Growth and Opportunity Act, and the European scheme is called Everything But Arms. Now, as Europeans, we know what to expect of the Americans. They don't care, do they? about the bottom billion and Africa. We, the Europeans, we're the ones who care. You know, think of Glen Eagles, right? We care. And so actually, it's deeply embarrassing that a goer works just very well, whereas everything but arms, our scheme, is totally useless. The devil of trade policy is always in the detail. A goer is a pretty lousy scheme. You could make it vastly better. But in key points, it's got it just about right enough. And the key point is the, country of, is the countries that are included in the scheme and uh, the rules of origin. If you don't know what rules of origin are, you don't want to find out from me now. Right? Um, but Google it. Right? It matters big time. Right? America's got those two features just right enough. And so, with Tony Venables, we've done a statistical analysis on Africa's garments exports. It's only garments that are covered by this rules of origin waiver. And over the last five years, when the scheme has been in place, African garments exports to the U.S. have increased sevenfold as a result of this scheme. And we're able to show that it is indeed as a result of this scheme. And what about Europe? Well, over the same period... Africa garment exports to Europe have fallen, absolutely. Right. So just for interest, let me explain why the European scheme is useless. Right. And the difference, the key differences, are which countries are included and what are the rules of origin, generous or not. 
And uh, let's, take a country, let's take two countries, Kenya and Somalia. Right? And ask yourself, which of those is likely to become anytime soon a platform for uh, factories to set up and export garments to Europe? Yeah? Kenya or Somalia? Yeah? So, you were pleased to hear that the European scheme includes Somalia but excludes Kenya. So I went to see um, the Director General of the uh, Trade Policy at the European Commission. I went with Tony Venables. And uh, we said, why are you doing this? And he said, oh, we want to focus the benefits on the most needy countries. And of course he's quite right. Somalia is more needy than Kenya. Right? So, you know, it was a very noble gesture. And then we said, so why are you having these very restrictive rules of origin that mean that or enormous proportion of the value added on garments has to be done within the country. Yeah. And he said, well, we want to encourage deep processes of industrial integration in Somalia. Yeah. That's the policies we've got. Yeah. Now, Tony and I have been fighting over the last year to try and get those trends. We tried to get it into the G8. And the G8 just slid off into aid land, right? Double aid, double aid again, not enough. You know, that's all the noise. We couldn't get it in the end into the G8. We kept going backwards and forwards to Berlin. We just couldn't do it. Yeah? We've got a second, second bite of the cherry, which is the Lisbon summit between Europe and Africa uh, in December. And it looks as if we've done it. Yeah? It looks as if we might have done it. But that's, that's how frivolous our trade policy has been. Okay. Remember, reform has to come from within. We can't do it for them, but we can make things a lot easier or a lot harder. Okay. Within the bottom billion, there's a struggle, there's a power struggle going on between reformers and crooks. And usually the crooks win because the crooks have got the money and the crooks have got the guns and the crooks don't mind cheating. Yeah? The least we can do is get as strongly as possible behind these weak forces for change. Let me conclude with how do we get from where we are, which is gesture politics, to where we need to be. Yeah? How do we do it? Well, I've spent the last few years trying to argue with the likes of uh, the Director General of Trade Policy of the European Commission and I realised I was basically banging my head against a brick wall and the reason for that is that our policies towards the bottom billion are at the moment driven by uh, populist thinking of what politicians think ordinary citizens want whilst ever they can get away with the heartthrob stuff, that's what you'll get. You'll get photo opportunities of politicians kissing babies okay? under headlines of double this and double that. Okay? Blair saves Africa, forget about Iraq. That was, to my mind, what, what uh, Glenn Eagles was about. 
Brown says Africa, forget about Blair. <laughs> it was what the Africa Commission nearly became, because until the very last moment, there were going to be two reports, one for Blair and one for Blair. Um, we've got to move on from that, and I realised that I couldn't do it. That it depended, not upon the likes of me, it depended upon mass movements of citizens. Citizens are setting policy on development, but at the moment, our policy on development is about like where our macroeconomic policy was in the 1960s. Very bad because politicians realized they could fool citizens. And over the last 40 years, citizens have really wised up on the basic principles of macroeconomics. So uh, political business cycle's gone. The whole business of bribing people with their own money just before an election to win it has gone. Because people now understand it. We've got to move up to speed with popular understanding and development. That's the only way. That's why I wrote the bottom billion so that it could be read. In fact, I wrote it with one private criterion, which I don't usually say, I wrote it so that it could be read on a beach. Um, I was delighted a couple of weeks ago to meet somebody who'd done just that. Um, So it's a serious content. It's entirely based on many years of a large research program of a lot of people. But it's an easy read. And it's because I recognized I needed ambassadors. So what I ask you to do is read it, think about it, You won't agree with all of it. If you agree with enough of it, become ambassadors for the ideas. Citizen power is the only way we will get policy change. Thanks very much. as I'm sure you'll all agree, a quite brilliant lecture. Um, I think what Paul would like to do now is to take groups of three or four questions uh, together. If you could keep your questions short and to the point, then I'm sure we'll have more time to hear Paul answer them afterwards. So I think we've got a couple of mics, hopefully upstairs and, and downstairs. There's a gentleman at the back to start with. Thank you. I thought what you said about Goa was very interesting. I was just wondering how officials, say, from China, from India, from Bangladesh and so on, where there are still many, many poor people, actually feel about these proposals. Gentleman here. You talked about the role of things like the media and the like, and I wondered whether you wanted to say whether any countries that are at risk of going backwards, countries where the media is getting weaker and weaker, and I was thinking in particular of Russia, uh, which is having this big resource boom and where we might think civil society is struggling. Lady at the back. Hi, yeah, I had a question about what you thought on the um, performance-based policy of allocating resources from the most concessional funds of the regional development banks. 
as a way to improve governance and you've talked about how you think reform should come from within and do you think this policy that they've recently been promoting is going to be successful at all and well, where they should go with it? Thank you. We'll take one more. Just gentlemen. Yes. May I ask you, my name is Mr. Bonfa. Can you ex say, tell us something about this globalization of data that you have, globalization of data that you collect through the world in order to reach this conclusion? Thank you. Did anybody? I didn't catch the question either. Could you give it one more time, please? All your analysis is based on data collected globally, I understand. Can you, a little bit, go more inside which kind of data, how you organize data, how you develop, okay. how you develop this scenario, how you come to the conclusion? Thank you. Yeah, thank you, sure. I'm going to let Paul answer the first four now, and then we'll take a, another round. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, start with um, how will China and co view uh, preferences for Africa. Um, first of all, we've, got, we've already got these preferences for Africa, right? Um, nobody said boo. They've been there for five years. Nobody said boo, right? The last thing China's going to do is say, um, uh, is to challenge uh, Africa at the WTO or something. China's desperate to ingratiate itself with Africa because it wants to extract natural resources out of it, right? Um, the, there's a very simple piece of economics here, and it's not a morality talk story at all, right? It's that clusters create um, thresholds. And if the bottom billion are to break in to markets, they have to be protected from areas which already got established clusters. Uh, and those happen to be in Asia, right? Um, so the... Uh, the idea that Asia will be so scared of Africa that it will block it seems to me just fantastical, right? I mean, this is a, just a drop in the ocean. It's a, it's a tiny proportion of the annual growth in Asia's exports to OECD markets. Uh, it's getting Africa a foothold in. Um, and so uh, I don't see it as problematic. There's, there's an interesting question about uh, Russia. Um, and the sensible response would be to say, I don't do Russia. Um, uh, the, um, I, I was in, a few years ago, I was invited to Moscow to give a lecture on sort of, it was, it was lessons from different places, lessons from Latin America for, for Russia, lessons from here. And I was supposed to do lessons from Africa to Russia. So I thought, oh, you know, this, is, this is asking for trouble. So my strategy was to say, I don't know anything about Russia, and I assume it's totally different. So you won't learn anything. I'm just going to tell you about Africa. At the end of the talk, there are forest of hands saying, it's just like that here. Right? Now, in my private moments of horror, I suspect it is just like that here. Right? And so I'm worried. Yeah. The, the one thing that, set, that is, 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 leads to a, a more hopeful view is that Russia does have this critical mass. Right? It's a very big population and a very high proportion of educated people. And so it's in a better condition to actually do the thinking through um, than uh, if you were DRC. Um, aid allocation and governance. Um, I, uh, a few years ago, I did work on aid allocation, uh, arguing that uh, the, uh, 
it was a sort of two-pronged argument. One was that basically aid cannot significantly induce policy change. Um, and I think that's broadly right. I think policy change comes from within, and there are very ambiguous and offsetting effects of aid on the internal dynamics of policy change. So uh, they're complicated. They'll be different in different places. But as a first-order approximation, I think assuming that they're zero is not a bad start. Right? So can we induce change through aid allocation? No, I think. Um, I do now see the, the process I kind of, I don't know whether I started it, but certainly reinforced as problematic, and that was the skewing of aid towards the high-performing countries. Um, I think that's very problematic. Um, and so a lot of my recent work has been to try and uh, demonstrate that aid can be useful uh, in much more difficult environments. But we shouldn't be naive there. It's not a matter of, for example, giving budget support to very bad governance environments. It's, even, it's far worse than the, the fact that the aid will be wasted. The, aid, the money will be captured by exactly the people who are opposing the people you want to help. And so we've got to go into these environments with our eyes open and have very careful systems of accountability. I believe we need a different architecture of aid delivery in the bad governance environments. Budget support is a great idea in the well-governed environments, and we need a completely different model for the badly governed environments. I sketch in the book uh, uh, a system called independent service authorities, which is an attempt to tackle the principal agent problems that festoon service delivery in developing countries. And I think to date, the donor community has just not got serious with engaging with those problems. Um, the question on data, um, we could be here all night and through to tomorrow night, um, the, but we don't have to be because the answer is um, all this research is published or in process of publication, and so it's all documented with downloadable data sets. Um, and if you go to my website, um, you'll just see all the papers stacked up, downloadable for free. Um, and so that's how you chase the, uh, the data, right? I mean, uh, all the research here is replicable. Um, it can be improved upon, and I very much hope it will be. Right? Of the nature of my research program, it's cast its nest net, net wide. Right? And so I've done my best to do that research to the highest standards I can. Right? But often in these areas, unfortunately, it was my research or nothing. Yeah. That's really dangerous. Yeah. And so I really encourage young researchers to come in, do it better, where it's weak, demolish it. Yeah. There has to be a really solid basis of empirical research on these questions and theoretical research. Yeah. Um, but the data's there. It's amazing, I should just add, what you can now do with data. Um, I've got a young postdoc, uh, Pedro Vicente, at the centre in Oxford, and we are conducting randomised experiments on how to win an election 
without really trying. Or, or, or rather, how to win an election by trying very hard, but are things you really don't want to know about. Right? Um, and if you can do random, we did, we did randomized experiments on the use of violence and intimidation in the recent Nigerian elections. And, it, and we, we, we managed to pull that study off. If you can do that, you can do most empirical studies. Thanks. Thank you. I, I already have three people downstairs, then I'll go upstairs. There's the gentleman at the back, Edward and Robert Wade. Um, Professor Collins, the vast amount of aid available for Africa now is largely going in the form of budgetary aid. Where do you think this is going to end up? Do you share the forthcoming UN Human Development Report's pessimism about the impact of climate change on the bottom billion and others? And a very brief and respectful point, I found your reference to the roasting of the Jews unfortunate coinage slash insensitive. Thank you. We have uh, Robert Wade. We, can we take Robert and then pass it along? Thank you. Then I'll go upstairs next round. This is about policy. Um, given the uh, lack of agglomerations, in uh, manufacturing agglomerations in Africa, and given the efficiency of the Asian agglomerations, do you think there's a case for actually increasing uh, Europe's uh, tariffs on competing Asian exports, exports which compete against products from Africa, so as to uh, increase beyond uh, the present the incentive on producers in Africa to get into these manufacturing sectors and export abroad. And secondly, you haven't mentioned anything about um, regional integration. I wondered whether you think there is potential for developing agglomerations in Africa through accelerated efforts at developing um, regional markets, whether through customs unions or something else. Uh, last one downstairs, the lady right there. Thank you very much. If I could go back to your aid allocation. Uh, with China having such an amazing imbalance with America and, and Europe, and now I, in the Sunday Times last week, 160 Chinese billionaires, I wondered what your view was on DFID's vast amount of aid that British taxpayers are paying to China. Okay, here we go. Um, where will budget support lead? Um, the, at its best, budget support's a really good idea. Right? That, uh, where governance is reasonable, uh, it, it replaces the zoo of donor projects, right? which is just, just was a terrible way of, of providing assistance. Terrible way. And so at its best, it's a really good idea. Right? At its worst, it's just handing money to crooks. The European Commission gave 20 million euro budget support to the government of Chad in 2005, I think. I remember visiting Chad then. Um, We just learned that a tracking survey of public spending, which was supposed to be released by the Ministry of Finance for rural health clinics, um, less than 1% of the money reached the clinics. Right? Um, 
so, and we also know that the, at precisely the time the European Commission gave the 20 million euro, the Chad government was dismantling the um, legal system for using the oil money on social expenditures because it wanted to switch the money into military spending. Yeah. So, um, we, we, if we close our eyes and give budget support, um, we know what will happen. Um, climate change. Um, I, uh, for 30 years, one of my really close friends has been, the man who was Sir Nicholas Stern, is now Lord, Lord Climate Change, I suppose. Um, <laughs> and um, uh, so usually I leave it to him, but, but let, let, let me say one word about how climate change is going to play out in the bottom billion, why it matters. And it does matter. Um, it matters particularly for the landlocked resource, for the, for the, take a coastal resource scarce country like Kenya. Right? Now, Kenya has got one of the most rapidly growing populations on Earth. It's got a relatively small usable land base. There's a lot of land that's already useless. That small usable land base is going to be gradually eroded by, climatic, by climate change. And so you've got a diminishing agricultural resource and a very fast-growing labor force. At the moment, less than a tenth of the Kenyan labor force is in formal employment. And so we just have to have some sort of engine that will create ordinary jobs for relatively unskilled young people. And uh, export manufacturing is the one engine that we know can do that. Um, I think relying on agriculture is, um, is probably a bit too risky. So I'm not against agricultural studies for Africa, but I think... Um, there's probably been a, a bit of an overemphasis. There's been a sort of rather kind of facile analysis, Africa's, labor, Africa's land abundant, therefore agriculture, um, which is true in some places, but very much not true in others. Um, industrial strategies. Um, again, let me, let me just flesh out um, Kenya. Um, there's some things we can do which is our trade policy, there's some things the Kenyans have to do. Uh, and at the moment, they're not getting it right. They've sort of heard this vague buzz that they ought to be doing things like export processing zones. And so they do them. Right? But it's a sort of imitation of a language rather than an understanding of the concept. Right? And let me spell it out. Kenya has export processing zones. Actually, it's got quite a lot of them. In fact, it's got 73 of them. Right? They're all over the country. Right? There's even one where you'd need to put one, namely at the port in Mombasa. Right? I'm sorry, I misspoke. There are actually 43 of them. Right? 73 is another number in this story. 73 is the total number of firms in all the export zones put together. <laughs> so the average zone has about one and a half firms. Right? How did that come about? Because the Kenyan government is using export processing zones as a piece of political patronage. 
So affirm here, affirm there. They lobby. Yeah. They get the tax incentives. Yeah. What's needed? You need one cluster at the port. It's no good putting export processing zone in Nairobi. They're hundreds of miles away from a port. You need to cluster all your firms together at Mombasa. So there's a lot that Kenya needs to do. Uh, what about regional markets? Yes, but. Right? Um, and two buts. Uh, one is, you know, even if we put the whole of Africa together into an effective regional market, that's not very big. A lot, less, a lot smaller than India. Yeah. And so it's not the royal road to scale and you know, market size. Uh, the second is uh, African countries have been trying uh, ever since independence um, to uh, create regional integration. Um, and not just African countries. Every outside um, policymaker who, get, who is new to Africa, the first thing that comes on their agenda, and I've seen it over many years because they often ask me, they come to see me and they say, you know, here's my agenda. What do you think of it? And you can be absolutely sure that regional integration is on that list, right? So outside it's been encouraged, inside it's been encouraged. The reality is it's acutely politically difficult. Africa is 53 countries. The reality is high internal barriers. Actually, the route to getting those barriers down will probably be Africa's integration with global markets rather than just African countries liberalizing one against another. The reason being that when, just, when you liberalize one against another behind high external barriers, you create very powerful redistributions. In fact, as Venables has shown, the redistributions are perverse because whereas in rich countries like the European community, what you get is convergence, a customs union, the poorest grow fastest. But unfortunately, the very same economics predicts not convergence, but divergence when you do that same thing amongst the low-income countries of the South. And that's what we've seen is that where we've had efforts at regional integration, they've created powerful redistributions from the poorer to the richer. And so the politics is all right? I apologize if I offended anybody by writing remarks about the Jews. What it was meant to roast was, of course, the pre-war policies which um, turned to neglect. And, uh, and those deserved to be roasted. Oh, what about the idea of raising uh, European tariffs on Asian products which compete with potential African products? Um, I think there's um, not a snowball's chance in hell of, um, and nor would I want to be associated with a strategy of increasing protectionism against Asia. I think once we made any suggestion that that was a helpful strategy for the bottom billion, we know very well how it will be hijacked. 
right? Every protectionist lobby in Europe and America would turn out to have its heart firmly in the cause of helping the bottom billion and therefore needing protection against Asia, right? Let's not go there. I think we've got time perhaps for two more questions. Uh, that's just to your right. Uh, we'll take these people upstairs, please. Um, good evening. Um, I was interested in your ideas about this kind of citizen power needed to spread ideas and have a deeper understanding of trade issues. Um, and one issue that's kind of one idea that's begun to get some momentum, I guess, here particularly is the idea of fair trade. And that's quite a kind of a concept that is beginning to be understood, but I'm not sure how deeply. And I was in wondering how this idea of fair trade you think as a concept feeds in with your ideas, whether it's an opposition, whether it's part of it, or whether it's just a confusing idea. just would like to know. Yep. Good question. I think the gentleman straight in front. Well, uh, since you didn't uh, focus your discussion only on economic issues, I think I can ask my question. You mentioned that uh, lots of these problems stem from the geopolitical situation of the countries, especially in Africa, the landlocked countries and so and so. And we know this is a result of some overnight decisions. The, states, the nation state's formation there is not a, a result of a genuine process or internally driven process. Yeah. Do you think the solutions you're proposing here will just slow down any other geopolitical solution and just keep the status quo as it is? Or you think maybe other solutions for correcting these wrongdoings can be proposed. Thank you. Right, yeah, shall we just take those two? Um, citizen power. Um, citizen power works. Um, uh, it's produced amazing changes. You only have to think of environmental policies and you realize just how potent uh, citizens can be. Uh, even in the case of of um, the governance of resource riches, which I think is the first order issue that has to be faced for the bottom billion at the moment. It's citizen power uh, that is actually responsible for the one international standard and code we've got. It was 30 people in a little NGO called Global Witness that started a campaign called Publish What You Pay. First, that got picked up by Tony Blair one of the best things he did, turned into something called the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative. That then got passed to the work from uh, the British government to the World Bank, which didn't know what to do with it. And it's now been picked up as an international organization based in Oslo. I was there uh, last week. Um, that Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative has already had massive effects. Okay? It's a very, very, very minimal requirement the governments let their own citizens know how much revenues they're getting. Right? So it's really, it's the right place to start. It's completely the wrong place to stop. But it shows the power of citizens that move from nothing to this international standard within about five years. And it's been adopted by a lot of reformers in developing countries. Actually, not just in developing countries. I was hearing last month that it's had a power of good in Russia. So there's a, an example of really fine citizen power. We need more of it. Um, is fair trade um, the right place for citizen energies? Um, I'm a bit skeptical. Um, 
I'm not anti-fair trade, very much not, but I think it's um, relatively unimportant compared with, say, the other trade issue of trying to get rules of origin changed in the European community. If we have the energy on fair trade directed to that, we'd have had those rules of origin gone up in smoke long before now. Um, Fair trade is kind of a a two-edged sword. Let let, let me um, show you some of the problems. There's there's clearly some benefits, right? But let me show you some of the problems. In order for fair trade to be a credible process, there has to be a certification process that, as it were, the coffee you're buying is actually produced under fair trade conditions. In order for there to be a certification process, that requires a certain standard of competence in governance. So, for example, the Costa Ricans managed to get their act together very fast and produce fair trade coffee from Costa Rica. Some of the poorest places in the world with terrible governance haven't managed to get processes in place. And so now think think of the, the nightmare case in which the better government countries like Costa Rica managed to get fair trade in place and not the really awful. What fair trade does is not increase the demand for coffee, it diverts the demand for coffee from one type of coffee to another, uncertified coffee to certified coffee. If the poorest people on earth are producing the uncertified coffee and slightly better off people in Costa Rica are producing the certified, fair trade is unfortunately a redistribution from the dirt poor to the poor. Now, I'm not... I'm not saying that's all the end of the story for fair trade, but I think it's, um, it's an example of where kind of we need analytics to support, um, to support passion. Uh, passion is absolutely vital in getting change, um, but let's try and direct that passion to the areas that would make a huge difference, and there are plenty of them. Um, my book has a chapter on trade policy, where I take apart um, the Christian aid campaign on trade of a couple of years ago, um, which um, was, to my mind, a truly extraordinary story. I really ask you to read it. Um, I argue that Christian aid was, to say the least, um, irresponsible. The most amazing thing is that there's 30,000 of the copies of this book sold. Um, I haven't heard boo from Christian Aid. Not boo. Now, you might think, have they read it? But yes, they have. Because if you go onto the Amazon.co.uk website, punch in bottom billion, and scroll down, you know, people can rate the bottom billion. They can rate books on Amazon.com. And so you'll see five-star, 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 two-star, five-star, five-star, five-star. You know, look, two-star? Somebody didn't like it. Ah, the research team at Christian Aid. <laughs> so they did read it. Right? Um, there's, a, there's another question about sort of political architecture. Let me take that. Um, uh, in a sense, it's, you know, it's none of my business to advise Africans on something like African political architecture. 
right, it's for them. Um, my hunch is that there are too many countries. Right? Uh, Africa's got a smaller population, a much smaller population than India, and it's split up into 53 countries. Right? I think that's too many. Right? Um, it's very hard to see a process of, uh, of, of, of merging countries um, because the rents to sovereignty for the elites are enormous. And so the processes we see at work in Africa are exactly the opposite. You know, Eritrea peeled off from Ethiopia in the process turning Ethiopia into a very highly populous, landlocked, resource-scarce country. Uh, Southern Sudan may well peel off from Sudan, creating yet another landlocked country. Right? So the, dynamic, the political dynamics are not that favorable. Um, I don't think that the attempt to to do a big bang African Union is credible. Um, the African Union just has too many disparate members. And so the process I think could be credible is a gradual merger. And I've, I've got high hopes for the East African community. Because after all, before the countries were countries, they were a regional group. Uh, and there's a lot of um, actually sort of emotional attachment in East Africa to the East African community. And I would like to see the, both the symbols, like a common currency, uh, and the infrastructure, like common airlines, common rail networks, uh, put back together again. But I see uh, starting small and gradually enlarging. That's, after all, how the European community did it. That, I think, is more viable than the grand political gestures of 53 presidents coming together every year and saying how much we love each other. Thank you. Well, time is against us. Just before you go and before I offer a formal vote of thanks to Paul, uh, just two quick remarks. Uh, there's somebody in the room tonight who will be particularly pleased with the remarks that you made about Costa Rica. You'll find out why at dinner, Paul. Secondly, on the question of dinner, I'm now going to cause anarchy by saying that amongst the uh, distinguished group of people that were expected to be there tonight, unfortunately the pro-director, Sarah Worthington, cannot be there and she is one of the guests of Destin. So if there is a colleague of mine out there or perhaps uh, a student from Destin who wants to step up to the plate, um, please see me quickly afterwards. Uh, and I mean that. Um, you would have a very interesting evening. Um, but mainly I just wanted to say that I think we've been treated tonight to a, a talk of, of great brilliance on a, on a very important topic. And it's very interesting to see somebody pre presenting a lecture in such a serious manner uh, without the usual props as well. So I would like to say uh, a big thank you to you, Paul, for coming to the LSE tonight and giving uh, this year's Destin Stickered Lecture. <laughs>